Welcome to Hunger for Wholeness. I'm your host, Robert Nicastro. In today's episode, Elia dialogues with historian and religious scholar Diana Butler Bass. They discuss the state of the church, its colonial legacy, and the opportunities and challenges of burgeoning Christian diversities in a globalized world. First of all, let me welcome you, Diana. We're really thrilled that you're with us on this podcast, A Hunger for Wholeness. And, you know, we are seeking how to understand where we are today with regard to religion, especially Christianity, and a world of science, technology, shifts in culture, a very chaotic and complexified world that we built for ourselves. And so you've written quite a bit on and your engagement with American Christian religion, American Christian history. Let me begin by asking, where do you see where we are today, this wonderful tradition called Christianity? Where do you see that it sits within this large global network of changing life? Well, I think that American Christianity is in a really interesting moment because it is following the path that Western European Christianity followed at the beginning of the 20th century. And it took Christianity in the United States about 100 years to sort of catch up to the same questions about doubt and the existence of God and science and skepticism and all of those things which roiled Europe several generations ago. Right. So people thought that the United States in particular would never get to that place, that the United States was kind of an exception to the pattern of religious skepticism that had been prevalent through the rest of the what used to be Christendom. Yeah. But that's not the case any longer. And so the United States has essentially joined its historic cousins. Do you think the Puritans were trying to get away from that? Were they trying to get away from some of the shifts that were occurring in Europe? Yeah, you know, the early European colonists and settlers... Um, who came, who were Christians, almost all of them had some sort of utopian scheme in mind Yeah, that they were trying to get away from something that had bedeviled them in Europe. And usually it was something to do with church-state arrangements. And so a lot of these very idealistic people, the, the, the folks who came with that kind of idealism, there were plenty of people who just came because they came or came because they were criminals or came because they wanted to make a lot of money. But there was a significant portion of people who came because they really wanted to make a new life in in what they perceived to be a new world. And so the Puritans had probably the most well-known of those schemes, the idea of creating a model society, a city set upon a hill. And their sense was if you had a pure church and the people who were part of the pure church were also the civil magistrates, then you could have a truly Christian society. And so that was one of the ideas. The Quakers and Catholics and some Anglicans all had different ideas about what a Christianized new world would look like. But the Puritans have haunted us uh, for the several century. You know, this idea of like purity, you know, The church, you know, even among the Franciscans, this this idea that, you know, the reform in the Franciscans was they wanted a a pure kind of Franciscan spirit among the Cistercians, same idea, a purified, you know, we're always looking for this, like, 
the thing without any, you know, what other stuff in it, you know, that the messiness that life gets to it. So, you know, this notion of purities, but not so helpful, I think, actually. that That's called dead, I think. You know? <laughs> well, it's weird how it's often associated with religious movements. I love the way that you just sort of put it right in its place with some of the monastic developments, too, because those kinds of movements are very similar to a lot of early forms of Protestantism and a lot of uh, forms of Protestant utopianism. And I, I guess one of the things that I find really fascinating and I can't get off of your first question in my mind because you ask about the United States and then you said, oh, and global, you know, Christianity. And one of the biggest tensions right now is between what used to be Christendom, yeah, which is struggling with this new sort of vast secularism and skepticism. And so there's this internal struggle in those places. But then there's also the struggle with the places that are becoming more Christianized. So you have, you know this, huge populations of Christians in Africa and South America. And those Christians are not in the same timeline that <laughs> Western post-Christendom Christianity is in. And so there's a struggle between the two. And one of the points of struggle is that idea of purity. Huh. That's really interesting because I've thought about that in terms of evolution, because evolution never works uniformly. Like, okay, we're all going to evolve at the same time. It never works that way. It always works locally. So even in terms of religious consciousness, like the uh, evolution of religious consciousness depends on factors like education, economic status, you know, freedom, where we are in the culture and all those all those things. So you can see as various countries around the world, as they're kind of building, you know, their infrastructures and getting better cell phone connections and Microsoft and Google stuff, you know, but they're in a different level of consciousness. So they, they're coming out of long traditions, you know, sometimes indigenous traditions or primal spirituality traditions. And now they're dealing with the the kind of globalization, you know, effect. So religion functions, I think, in a different way around the world, and that's the thing. And and so the way religion is kind of developing is not uniform. Yeah. And therefore, I think you have these kind of recurrent uh, movements, like yeah, we need to be, you know, we need purified Christianity and christendom these constructs so you know more and more the i think christianity is like a it's a construct that you know of symbols and rituals and belief systems that help us kind of navigate like our soul gps you know like this is where we are in the universe and that's shifting it's like your gps is getting new software you know as we begin to understand things yeah So it's kind of exciting in my view. I, I mean, what do you think? Is this, is this exciting for you as well? It is. And I think there is, it's really easy for people in Western contexts to misconstrue, I think, what's happening with global Christianity. And the purity piece often seems to me to be a piece about power. 
is when people feel sort of spinning out of control, they look for boundaries and borders to sort of put around issues and concerns. And that just makes navigating all this change a bit neater. And uh, I guess part of the reason I'm bringing this up is that just earlier today, as we're recording, I was reading about the tension that's now developing between a very, very sharp tension that's been in the making for a long time, but it's come to a head now between African Anglicans, I'm an Episcopalian, and the the actual Church of England, where bishops from Africa are now saying that the Archbishop of Canterbury shouldn't be the Archbishop of Canterbury, that there should be no primacy of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is sort of like the demi-pope yeah. in Anglicanism <laughs> or the semi-pope um, <laughs> of Anglicanism. But the Africans are saying, no, 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 we don't want that guy. And and it's all revolving around issues related to sexuality, um, women's authority right. and the inclusion of LGBTQ people in churches, which most of the more liberal yes. and historic groups in the West are at least dealing with, yes. if not actually changing. The Episcopalians are ahead of the Catholics. I have to yeah. I mean, I walked into an Episcopalian church last week and it was a woman celebrant i was like yeah. cool wow this is what <laughs> it looks like you know when you include women and on the altar that's incredible it was like it was like i'm exactly almost balanced male and female yeah this almost looks almost like what the reign of god might look like you know or what we're anticipating, but I didn't want to get too, you know, overboard there. But, <laughs> what, one time I was at the Eucharist and it happened to be all women in the altar party. And uh, afterwards, I mentioned this to some friend who was there with me and it was a guy. And he said, that was really strange seeing all women up there at the altar. And I said, well, how do you think we felt for the last 2000 years? <laughs> it's really amazing. So even having women, you know, kind of adulterate, you know, like if you want the purified power complex idea, okay. even having women kind of corrupts that in some way. You know, I like the emphasis on power and purity. That relationship there is very, very interesting, quite honestly. Power gives us control and allows us to manipulate the situation or the structure of things. And where we do least best is when we don't have control and we have to yield to the living on the edge, you know, in the chaos or the ambiguity or the, I'm not sure what's going to happen if we allow women or, you know, if we have the LGBTQ community as fully included here. What's going to happen to us? Well, guess what? Nothing. (laughs) You're actually going to get bigger, you know? I think what you're saying, the other stream of the what you see in the global south and with these religious movements is that you you do see this issue of power and boundaries and purity and all that and that often pops up in these movements but the other thing that pops up is immediacy and you were talking about that as well is that the context that christians are in Af- in different african countries and the context in latin america and the context in asia are so different that they lend themselves to different kinds of biblical interpretations that immediately sort of speak. And so often the same sorts of churches that seem like they're fighting over purity will be engaged in social justice around economic or other kinds of issues 
that are things that are sort of immediately oppressing their own people. And so I think that within a lot of the global South Christianity, there's almost a fight going on between the contextual immediacy of reading the Bible afresh with the vision of Jesus and Jesus' hope for humanity and wholeness and shalom and all those things, and people who have been in power for a long time wanting to retain power through a new religion. And so that's a really interesting thing that's going on. And most are Westerners to say, oh, look, all those fundamentalists out in Africa. And that's not really it. a student right now who's from Africa and he took a course on process theology. So process philosophy, process thinking, which kind of makes Catholics a little bit nervous, you know, because it's about relationality. It's like, wow, about about relationality. (laughs) He said to me, when I discovered process thought, he said, I was at home. He said, for a long time, he comes from a culture where Ubuntu that kind of sense of the organic interconnectedness of everything, people and land and sky and this kind of this wholeness where one's identity is within the whole. He said he had a, always had a hard time with scholastic theology, you know, the Western theology that kind of it puts everything into a hierarchical framework and this notion of beingness and process thought is about relationships and flow and you know, and God's interconnectedness. And I wonder, you know, if there is a struggle between the, you know, what's kind of an imposed Western thinking, mm-hmm. you know, some of these cultures and traditions that are otherwise very deeply organic and interrelational. And they've had a hard time. And fundamentalism, maybe one way to look at it is they're trying to, you know, keep that religion preserved within a background uh, of a culture that's really, you know, a, a deeply relational culture. And I guess, you know, one thing is like opening up scriptures to it, what Robert's been working on. He could probably say more on scriptural holism, you know, looking at scripture as the groundedness of grounded relationship with a d- divine presence, a divine life. That's all about wholeness, life, flow, future. And where there's relationship, there's always going to be, you know, the unknown, the stuff in between, you know. And that's why I think a lot of our problems come from old philosophy, you know, <laughs> old dead guys. They're great thinkers, but they're dead. <laughs> I call them the old white boys. <laughs> the old white boys. But we, we insist on keeping them alive, you know, for, for whatever reasons, you know. It is really fantastic. That's a phenomenon in itself, but we won't we won't venture there. Why why old dead men have to be kept alive in the 21st century? It's a really interesting set of questions because as soon as you said connection and process theology and how that really has an appeal to your student from Africa, one of the first things I thought about is, well, wait a second, isn't that what Catholicism is supposed to be about? <laughs> At its very heart. It's a community of connection where the inner relationships between people are actually embodied in certain kinds of roles within the community. And so 
And then my historian went, oh, yeah, that's what it was supposed to be about with Jesus, but they kind of messed it up. Got it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Kind of ended with Constantine, I think. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What messes it up is really political power. It is. And imperialism, which eventually, you know, comes down the pike as I think that one of the fundamental problems that the whole of Christianity is struggling with all over the world is the relationships with it that it had with colonialism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And the kind of economic imperialism of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries that improved our lives in enormous ways, but also was tied to these hierarchies of, of wealth, race, privilege, gender, and power yep. that have done nothing but grow over that same period. And, and really, I mean, it's almost like exponential growth in the early 21st century. And so in Africa and the global South, they're dealing with that legacy of colonialism and struggling for their identity in particular ways. But I also think that Western culture can be seen as basically cultures that are struggling for voice, identity, meaning, and purpose over and against all of that stuff that our ancestors did. And so it's the same problem all over the world. And yet, depending on where we were in that flow of time that you pointed out, you know, different evolutionary pockets at different points along the way, the questions come out differently. But they're causing enormous conflict. Yeah. No matter the shape of the questions. Imperialism, colonialism, and technology, humanely or not, set the stage for a globally connected church. But still, local communities are defined by unique, diverse contexts. How do we cultivate a new, delicate, humane unity in diversity without repeating our species' traumatic and destructive power struggles? Are celebrity technologists our future liberators? Next, Ilya asks Diana what role science and technology play in the quest for a renewed spirit. Constantine didn't have this like quest, this thirst for absolute power. You know, what if what if Christianity didn't get kind of just so entwined in politics in that early period? I often wonder what Christianity might have looked like, you know, with those domestic churches and, you know, the emphasis on the spirit and very communally organized. Maybe that's my sense of purity, right? Let's go to the pre-Constantinian religion. But, you know, the fact is, I'm part of scientists, so I like to deal with facts. It happened, right? Right. Constantine happened, and the rest happened. The politicization of Christianity happened. And now we are at this threshold, I think, in the 21st century. It can't hold. I think that's the one thing. it It doesn't hold anymore. So, two questions. Where do you think science and technology could play a role, and especially technology. See, one of my working ideas is that we don't like ourselves anymore. <laughs> We're not happy. 
And we need to move out of the impasses we've developed for ourselves, you know. And there's something about technology that, you know, especially AI, even the internet, it connects us, right? So the connections that we long for, like we're we're dying for, we've built a technology that could bring us together, like mind to mind, maybe one day heart to heart. We're not quite there yet. But I see technology as our kind of internal psyches desperate for release from the prison of a kind of a stultified religion and a kind of suffocating culture with consumerism, with rampant monetization of everything. We humans have been commodified. I mean, we're not really human anymore. We're just numbers in a system easily replaced. So I was just curious what your thoughts might be on science and technology and the quest for the renewed spirit. Now, I'm working on a couple of projects in history right now, but I've gotten to know in the last two years a good number of people who work in Silicon Valley. And I can remember sort of when some of these relationships started opening up. It was about five years ago, I was invited to be a a lay pastor in residence at a Presbyterian congregation right outside of Silicon Valley proper. And most of the people in this church uh, worked in Silicon Valley. And I was giving a lecture on the future of Christianity, and one person put up their hand and they said, what do you think of AI? And I said, what? (laughs) I literally had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it was six years ago. (laughs) Because if you're not a scientist and you're not a tech geek, you know, this is still all very new. And so it was new to me when he asked the question. And I said, uh, well, can you explain that a little bit more to me? And then he started talking about what they were working on. And and he said, this seems to me to raise huge questions about what it means to be human being and creation and all these other sorts of theological things. And I said, yeah, it really does. I said, and all of them are beyond my capacity to understand at this point in time. <laughs> and so, I, you know, so I paid attention. And I certainly don't entirely understand it because I'm really a humanities person. I'm a historian. And I think evidentially, and I think about, you know, kinds of some of the ways scientists think, uh, but I apply that over in the humanities. So my methodology is different. And I've been working on these history projects, but I've been thinking about doing a book after I'm done with what I'm working on now. It's called AF. And of course, that's the riff on uh, a very, yes, (laughs) sort of a slangy uh, term that we can't really mention on your nice podcast. But, <laughs> but, but AF would be artificial faith. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I've really been trying to ask myself some of those questions that you've been asking. I have no, no understanding of them at, at this point in terms of what the longer effect will be. But I think that your intuition is correct. That part of our longing for technology, and I certainly see this among my Silicon Valley friends, is they do think religion is stiltified. They do think that capitalism, even though they have tons of money and they love getting rich, they see its its problems. They understand that the earth has been corrupted in ways and that somehow we need to fix the, the environmental problems. And so they think that technology is the pathway for us to be able to solve those problems. 
And in many cases, there's some sort of, I would say, almost a merger of religion and a sort of a technological view of the world that is coming out of Silicon Valley that is suggesting some of what you're suggesting. As soon as you get people start suggesting that there's sort of this new religious utopian path, you also can expect that there's going to be a a new temptation uh, right next to that. And I think that we see the temptation in someone like, you know, I hate to name names, but if we're going to put a snake in this garden, I'm going to name that snake Elon Musk. And (laughs) so... Because his, he, you know, his whole dream of going to space and and all this stuff is all out of, I think, a fairly almost corrupted and disconnected from any kind of tradition view of technology, and that there is an alternative kinds of religion that he's embracing, uh, transhumanism, and transhumanism. While I'm sure it has some merit also i think is a temptation uh, not unlike the puritans faced about setting their city upon a hill so i have to tell you you're you're spot on but there's some literature i have have in mind here that's that really just backs everything you're saying here one is david noble's book religion and technology in the spirit of invention where noble actually traces technology back to monasticism to western monasticism oh wow yeah, where development of technology could liberate the spirit. And he also, there's several things here. One, um, technology is a male endeavor because Adam, uh, it's deeply religious. Adam is created in the image of God and therefore has that divine likeness. But the fallenness of Adam, you know, rendered the human one who desires to to return to that God likeness. And technology is the means of restoring God likeness. Women have no part in this because, as we know from the stories, we're the source of sin, not the solution to anything. So, so women are never mentioned. You know, in the history of technology, you very you find very few women mentioned, and it's almost like, oh, really? They helped develop DNA, great. And then another one I have in mind is a, an article by Joel Dienerstein that was in American. Mm, I can't remember the journal, and he's saying the same, very much like Noble. That technology is fundamentally a religious endeavor in which the male seeks to restore and become godlike, to restore that fallen Adam. And therefore, this quest for purity, this quest for godlikeness, this quest for power is all part of the Adam myth and the restoring of the Adam myth. And so Dieterstein talks about NASA and the Apollo space flight. So you likened that to Musk. And what we're saying is that these scholars all, you know, do note the relationship between religion and technology. There's a there's a longstanding scholarly tradition here. And so I think there's definitely something to it. And you, and here's the thing like transhumanism with the big T, you know, we mm-hmm. call it big T transhumanism versus little T transhumanism. So big T transhumanism is that kind of male myth of spiritual perfection. You know, like we can become super intelligent, super powerful, 
will live forever, will conquer all our diseases, will conquer death, because they'll be godlike. We'll we'll be like gods, you know. So you know, it's the old max. Uh, the maxim that I use is transhumanism promises what religion has failed: salvation, immortality, happiness. You know, life is one big ice cream sundae. Making your own planet. Making your own planet, mm-hmm. right? You know. So to do that, of course, you'll need a lot, a lot of money. Right. So capitalism and, you know, the kind of building up of wealth kind of goes hand in hand with this, because if you're going to achieve godlikeness, you're going to need a lot of money, you know. Right. They do it, you know, just by becoming good people and spiritual, but that ain't going to, that's not going to restore anything to anyone. And of course, women, you know, they're not, they're not a huge part of this story. They're kind of marginal. And, And even, you know, now we don't hear of many women technologists, you know, who's creating the future? There are very few women that I know of who are creating the future other than myself. And you know, maybe, <laughs> no, this is not a plug for me, but <laughs> but they're not, right? You know, because I see the tie-in of wealth, power, technology, and religion. Those four factors are like, they're, they're woven together um, into the thread of restoring the, of the Adam myth and restoring the fall of Adam to divine likeness. That really, I mean, it really does fit with the, if you track like what is going on with people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and this this sort of giants of technology, I'm on Twitter a lot and Elon Musk has basically colonized an entire universe of, you know, millions and millions of people who are on Twitter and is functionally setting himself up as its god. And... I've been watching that and it's it's incredible to watch. And it's also a universe that's absent women. It's like for in his life, the only thing that women were good for was that he was married once and I guess bred two kids with un- unpronounceable names. And is the plan is that, you know, those children are carrying his gene pool forward onto, you know, living on the moon or Mars or wherever he chooses to settle. But there's no... There's literally no exchange other than biological mating that appears to happen. And in Silicon Valley, interestingly enough, is like 75% male. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking, you know, women will never be fully included in the species. And maybe one of the litmus tests is when we begin to shape the future, when, you know, right, the six zillion followers and people are saying, yeah, this person is shaping the future. Then we'll kind of have some idea. Maybe women do have a voice, you know, and a place. But I also see technology wanting us to get beyond the male-female kind of categories because there's a lot going on with technology, in my view. There's a lot of psychological underlying motives here and religious motives. But it is really interesting, I think. Yeah, it's it's not great, but it's it's, <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> This concludes our first episode with Diana Butler-Bass. Listen next week when Elia and Diana dig deeper into Silicon Valley's vision and our spiritual future. On behalf of the Center for Christogenesis, I'm Robert Nicastro. Thanks for listening.